Join me in prayer. Father God, thank you for your constant care for us through your word and by your spirit to draw us near to Jesus, to connect us to him, to draw fruit and holiness and Christ's likeness out of us. Do it this morning again through your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. How do you grow your connection with Jesus when you can't hear him? How can you become like him when you can't see him? I mean, he's already risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. So how can you live for Christ in a Christ-hating world with Jesus gone? Jesus says you should do it by abiding in him. After all, that's what Jesus said to his disciples in some of his final words before he left the earth in John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. You are the branches. Abide in me, and I in you. Simplicity, said Leonardo da Vinci, is the ultimate sophistication. And that's why Jesus was the most sophisticated teacher ever to walk the earth. Just look at how Jesus is simplifying the profound for you in John 15. You could call these verses Jesus' vineyard model of the Christian life. Because in John 15, Jesus uses a simple metaphor to explain your Christian life, that of a vine and a farmer. In fact, John 15 is written at a sixth grade reading level. Can you believe that? The God of the universe translating the infinite into the adolescent. Yet somehow, Jesus' simplicity doesn't take away from the meaning. Because in John 15, in only a few words, Jesus establishes himself as the unchanging source of life, of love, of obedience. His purpose is to strengthen your faith in him and to prepare you for when he leaves. To achieve this, Jesus commanded his disciples and commands you this morning to abide in him like a branch in a vine, like an astronaut clings to his spacesuit. This means that you can and you should connect with Jesus, even though now he's no longer physically on earth. So, what does abiding in Christ actually mean? The word abide in general means to remain or to stay. In the book of John, Jesus uses it to show a quality of your faith, an attribute of it. In abiding, you keep on believing in him and his teachings in order to receive spiritual life from him. Abiding in Christ starts with having faith in Christ, but abiding in Christ really revs up by getting life from him over and over and over again, and enjoying union with him too. For example, Jesus in John 6, 54 through 56, tells the 5,000 men he fed to believe in him for eternal life. Jesus pictured faith for them as eating his flesh 
and drinking his blood. (laughs) So you can imagine the look on the people's faces when Jesus said this in verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 55, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So here you see Jesus connecting your believing in him for eternal life to your abiding in him. He calls the act of you believing in him feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood. So, you believing in Jesus in this passage gives you eternal life. And that's according to verse 54. But Jesus also says that at the same time, when you believe in him, you also abide or remain in him and enjoy union with him. And that's in verse 56. Why does he say, why do I say union in, is coming from verse 56? It's because abide in me and I in you is Jesus' Trinitarian code word for union with him. So like Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4, believing in Jesus gives you eternal life. But abiding in Jesus means you keep on believing so you never run out of the water of life. You have a geyser of life water welling up inside of you to eternal life. When you have faith in Christ and his teachings, you quench your thirst on Christ. But when you abide in Christ, you're like a person sitting in a pure river. There you drink Christ again and again and again. So abiding in Christ is you realizing his abundant supply of life for you. Is that where you are at today? Do you have faith in Christ Are you getting your life from him over and over and over again? Are you enjoying union with Christ? Are you relying on Christ as your only source of life, as a deep-sea scuba diver might depend on his tanks? Because that is abiding in Christ. And here's how this is going to connect to our passage today in John 15. In John 15, Jesus is going to explain your relationship to him and the Father through the Holy Spirit using a new model. We called it this earlier, Jesus' vineyard model of the Christian life. In John 15, Jesus shows you the model, and then he shows you how to live inside the model for the rest of eternity through abiding in him. So that's going to be our outline. First, Jesus' vineyard model. Second, how Jesus teaches us to live in his vineyard model by abiding in Christ. So as far as Jesus' vineyard model of the Christian life, there are three foundational principles that equip us to abide in Christ. Foundational principle number one, Jesus' obedience as the true vine defines and supplies our obedience. Now here's what that means. Jesus' relationship to his Father is his model or pattern for your relationship to Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. Jesus' relationship to his Father 
is his model or pattern for your relationship to Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. So in other words, understanding how to abide in Christ starts here, deep in the inner workings of God in chapter 15, verse 1, which says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So here are two observations about this verse that show us that the relationship between Jesus and the Father is the pattern in which the entire Christian's branch life plays out. The first observation In verse 1, Jesus is presenting the relationship between him and the Father in a metaphor. 15 verse 1 is all of John chapter 14 in a tiny story or picture. In this tiny story, Jesus presents himself as a vine producing fruit for the vine dresser under the supervision and wise care of the vine dresser or vine farmer. All the fruit the vine farmer wants to get he gets from the vine. And all the fruit the vine bears, it bears for the vine farmer. When you see the vine, you see the vine farmer's work, supervising and caring for the vine. And when you look at the vine farmer's work, it's evident that the vine farmer's glory is displayed in the beauty and the productivity of the vine itself. Second observation, 15 verse 1, Jesus' tiny story about the vine and the farmer sounds an awful lot like last week's passage, John 14, where Jesus explained his relationship with the Father and vice versa. Look at 14, verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Which sounds like the vine and the farmer. If you had known the true vine, you would have known the vine farmer. 14 verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, which sounds like the vine, the farmer also. If you had seen the vine's beauty and productivity, you have seen the vine farmer's skill and wisdom. 14 verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, which sounds like the vine and the farmer. Believe me that the vine is united to the vine farmer and the vine farmer is united to the vine. 14 verse 10, and also part of 11. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe on account of the works themselves. Which sounds like the vine and the farmer. The things the vine does are not done under its own authority, but the vine farmers working in and through the vine The pruning work shows up sometimes decades later. Finally, 14 verse 31. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father, which sounds like the vine and the farmer again. The true vine does as the vine farmer commands by pruning it, by by the vine bearing fruit. This shows that the vine reacts positively to the vine farmer's pruning and reveals the farmer's skill in the beauty and productivity of the vine. So that's important. 14 verse 31, it's really defining what fruit is. It's obedience. It's the vine doing what the vine farmer wants, his will, bearing fruit. So in 14 verse 31, Jesus says, I do as the Father commanded me, 
so the world will know I love my Father. Then in the very next verse, 15 verse 1, Jesus says, let me illustrate that. I relate to my Father in my obedience the way a vine relates to a vine farmer. In context, this obedience in 14 verse 31 is the cross. So let's expand on this. In Christ's obedience, the true vine's fruit, we see pictured two aspects of Christ's obedience. The first aspect is Christ's perfect obedience during his earthly ministry, perfectly keeping the entire Mosaic law where Israel had failed. Some call this his active obedience. The second aspect is Jesus' obedience as the true vine, surrendering to and submitting under the Father's plan to send his Son to the cross as the ultimate Passover lamb. Some call this Jesus' passive obedience. So what we're seeing is that the true vine pictures Jesus' relationship to the Father in his obedience, as we said. But wait, there's more. (laughs) There's something else we should see, and that's that Jesus' relationship to the Father has a relationship to the Old Testament through his law-keeping and obedience. For example, Isaiah 5 reveals that Israel was a failed vineyard of the Lord. Israel failed because it was in union with the sin of Adam and needed a Savior. As Paul explains in Romans 5, Adam stands over the entire Old Testament as a representative head of humanity. And Adam was, to use Isaiah 5's language, a fallen sinful, failed vine. Israel was a branch, just like its vine, Adam. But in contrast to Adam and Israel, in 15 verse 1, Christ is the true vine. Jesus is the only one in whom all God's chosen people, Old Testament, New Testament, and today, can unite with God by faith and so become righteous and holy and even do righteousness and holiness. So there you have it. In 15 verse 1, Jesus has compressed many of the teachings in John 14 about his relationship to the Father and done it in, compressed it into a simple and profound image, the vine and the vine farmer. Jesus' vineyard model of the Christian life. Now this picture of a relationship between Jesus and the Father and how it connects to the Old Testament is a foundational principle for understanding how to abide in Christ. Abiding is abiding in the source of obedience. But before we move forward, you need to make sure you've pulled the sword of your assurance of salvation from the stone of your own performance and sunk your sword of assurance in the true rock where it belongs, Christ If you don't get secure in your connection to Jesus by faith as the true vine of obedience, you're at risk of getting all out of whack later. Because later in John 15, Jesus starts talking about how true disciples, how you, should be known by your practical love and holiness. Not the ethereal idea or emotion of love only. Jesus will talk about how you need to have a love that lays down its life. Love that sacrifices. Love others can see, touch, and feel. Love like Jesus when he went to the cross. Now, in some sense, you should get uncomfortable with that. You should feel the impossibility of it all. Achieving such perfect love is about as possible as surviving in space with shorts and a t-shirt. 
So if I forget that I'm connected to the true vine, that I have a spacesuit, Jesus, who already is perfect in his obedience, who already dotted his I's and crossed his T's of mosaic law-keeping, who alone is the source of power and wisdom for my act of obedience to every command of Scripture. If I forget I'm connected to Jesus, the true vine, then when I look at my pitiful, minuscule, sometimes non-existent fruit of love, I get scared. I start to lose hope. And as we'll see, that's the whole point of abiding. You don't get your hope from counting grapes. You get your hope from the vine. By relying totally and completely on the vine. So the point is not to think yourself strong, but to recognize your inability on your own and to jump into the spacesuit to abide in Jesus. So foundational principle number one of Jesus' vineyard model, Jesus' obedience as the true vine defines and supplies our obedience. Foundational principle number two, believers in Christ are united with Christ as branches and called to obedient fruit bearing. Here's what that means. As a believer and a disciple of Jesus, you're like a true branch in the true vine of Christ. Your job is to bear fruit for the Father just as Christ does. This is a picture of Christ-likeness, of being holy as God is holy. Christ, having kept the law perfectly in your place where you had failed, now takes you back to the law to teach you to obey it by his power and the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You could wonder, is Jesus trying to scare us into fruit bearing? Saying, if you don't bear fruit, you're out. Sounds like you have to earn your salvation after all. That doesn't sound like the gospel. But this is Jesus. I mean, I get it. The concern is understandable. But when you remember that in principle number one of Jesus' vineyard model, he defines and supplies our obedience, it's then you start to see that what Jesus is talking about here is not fruit that gets you into heaven, but fruit because you're already in the king of heaven, in Christ. Fruit because you're in Christ this fruit Jesus is talking about is the transforming effects of enjoying union with Christ. Well, how so? First, notice that Jesus introduces the idea that he is a true vine, has branches, disciples. These branches are pictured as in him. This phrase, in him and in Christ, is of course something Paul picks up and uses throughout his writings. This is because a key way of understanding your identity as a Christian disciple is as a branch or a person in Christ. It's a fundamental identity shift that's happened to us that occurs when you are born again, John chapter 3, and are made alive with Christ, Ephesians 2, and when you place your faith in Jesus alone for salvation, Romans 3. 
Second, notice here in verse 2, Jesus is showing his compassion for the disciples by highlighting two types of branches that appear to be true. One is fruitless and so removed by the Father. The other type of branch is fruitful but has problems that need to be pruned. Now, this was a, what vine farmers did. They, they pruned and they removed branches. And in an agrarian society like Israel, they were very familiar with that kind of work because it, it maximized the productivity and the fruitfulness of the vine. And here Jesus is saying vine farmer work is a picture of what God the Father does for the church. So a comforting thing here about that picture is that it presents God the Father as the judge of true versus fruitless branches, not us. Jesus isn't commanding us here to become branch checkers, shaking them around, trying to see if they need to go, and then praying, Lord, get Josh out of here. <laughs> That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying there are two kinds of churchgoers that both appear to be true disciples. They both say, I'm a Christian. They go to church. They do churchy things. But people who are true Christians with sin problems is one kind that he's talking about, genuine believers like Peter, and people who are Christians who are not Christians, and that's their problem, false believers like Judas. The only difference between the two in this passage is this one thing, fruit, the fruit of holiness and Christ-likeness. No, not obedience, again, not obedience to earn a place on the vine, but obedience because you're already in the vine. This is part of the motivation behind abiding in Christ that we should always keep in mind. Christ doesn't here command fruit-bearing in John 15. He commands abiding in Him. But abiding in Him, getting and enjoying spiritual life from Jesus through union with Jesus is the only way to bear fruit. And when you consider the first part of verse 2 about fruitless branches being taken away from the true vine, the stakes could not be higher. Look down also at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So notice in verse 6, these branches are burned for not abiding which explains their fruitlessness. And what is Jesus' goal in all of this? To teach you to abide in him. Finally, another reality of Christ's vineyard model is that the church, pictured as all the branches on the true vine of Christ, is supervised and cared for by the Father. So the Christian is presented smack dab in the middle between the vine and the vine farmer. Isn't that comforting? Between the Son and the Father. That's you. You are between the Son and the Father, which reminds us of what Jesus said in chapter 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. This verse reminds us again that Jesus' vineyard model defines exactly what fruit branches of the church should bear. It's love-motivated obedience to Christ. That's what fruit is. 
So Christians aren't free, of course, to substitute their favorite soapbox political issues, opinions, and preferences as the definition of fruit. So foundational principle number one, Jesus' obedience as the true vine defines and supplies our obedience. Foundational principle number two, believers in Christ are united with Christ as branches and called to obedient fruit bearing. And here's foundational principle number three. The Father constantly cares for believers in pruning through the Word and the Spirit. And here's what that means. The Father prunes true disciples through the words of Jesus. If hearing the necessity and importance of fruit bearing earlier got you discouraged when you thought about your own performance, this part should also encourage you. Look at verses 2 through 3 together. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So Jesus is saying, in effect, if God's pruning you, it's because you're already fruitful. If God is pruning you, it's because you're already fruitful. That's amazing grace. This is highlighted by the understanding that pruning and cleaning in this part of John, in verses 2 and 3, are similar concepts. The vine farmer prunes off dead wood from the vine to reserve plant energy for fruit production and to make sure enough light gets to the fruitful branches so they can bear more fruit. So in this sense, pruning cleans fruitful branches of obstacles and enemies to fruit bearing. And as James White pointed out, the same Greek root word is found in the word for prune and the word for clean. So that you could read verse 3 as, already you are pruned because of the word that I have spoken. So what's the point? It's encouragement. Do you ever struggle wondering whether you're one of the fruitless branches that God's going to hack off? Peter might have felt that way. After all, Jesus had just said that in only a couple of hours, Peter would deny him three times. But Jesus' words, already you are pruned, you are cleaned by the words that I have spoken to you, is meant to encourage Peter and you. And how, how, does, he, how does it supposed to encourage you? Because if you believe in Christ alone for your salvation, you already have a relationship with the Father through Christ. You already have a relationship with the Father through Christ. So you can be sure that God the Father is already pruning you, already cleaning you. He's actively removing fruit-bearing obstacles and enemies in your life through the Word. Things like idols, unbelief, selfishness, sinful habits, and so on, he prunes us through the word by bringing conviction to our minds and awareness that those things don't belong in our lives anymore. Of course, this is what the New Testament calls sanctification. So now at this point, you could start to think like I did, when is Jesus going to bring in the Holy Spirit to this vineyard model? I mean, I know he believes in the Trinity, but... <laughs> well, this is it. This is where we see Jesus pointing back to John chapter 14 and the ministry of the Holy Spirit here from John 15. 
Look at, verse, at two verses from John chapter 14 to support this. 14, 16 through 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. He dwells with you and will be in you. And then 14, 14 verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So we see in those two verses, the Father sends the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name in order to teach you and remind you of the words of Christ. So the Holy Spirit is involved then in this pruning and cleaning work of John 15, verse 3. The Father is in charge of the final removal of these sinful things from your life through pruning. The Father prunes and cleans and removes sin. And the Father does this through Scripture and in collaboration with the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. Think about this. If you're a Christian, even before you arrived here this morning, the Father has already been working in your life to prune you by the Word and through His Spirit. Why? Because you're a branch in the true vine, a disciple. He loves you. He is at work in your life. He's already been at work in your life. And what an incomprehensible honor and privilege that Jesus would make use of you and me in His perfect and sure work of glorifying the Father as the true vine. So to be a Christian, a branch in the true vine, is to be drawn into the eternal love of God, the glorification of God, and the obedience to God that Jesus continually offers to the Father. To be rescued from sin and guilt and wrath at the cross and the resurrection, and then be rescued into this union with Christ, it's supposed to stir our hearts. So we've seen three foundational principles to abiding in Christ that were embedded in Jesus' vineyard model of the Christian life. First, Jesus' obedience as the true vine defines and supplies our obedience. Second, believers in Christ are united to Christ and called to obedient fruit-bearing. Third, the Father is constantly caring for believers and pruning through the Word of Christ and the Spirit of Christ. That's Jesus' model. It's patterned after his relationship to the Father. And I hope, by God's grace, your heart is in awe of what Jesus has done for us and revealed to us here. Now, if what we've learned so far is Jesus taking a look, taking us for a look under the hood of a sports car, then the rest of the message is Jesus saying, why don't you hop in and take it for a spin? How about you use the three foundational principles from verses 1 through 3 to interact with God? It's like he's saying, since you have union with Christ as a gift of salvation, use it. Thrive in it. Commune with the living God. Fellowship with Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. Take your union with Christ for a spin in communion with Him. To put it in Jesus' language, abide in me. So how do you do that, though? Here's Jesus' practical guidance for how to abide in Him. Rely 
on him. That's what he says. Rely on him like, a, like an astronaut spacewalking in a spacesuit. That's the only thing they have. Christ is the only one you have. He's your only hope. Look at 15 verses 4 through 5. Notice Jesus' emphasis of reliance on him. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Relying on Jesus means living like apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Because you can't do anything apart from him. I heard one preacher put it this way. Imagine a winter glove laying on a bench. By itself, can the glove shovel snow? Can the glove throw a snowball or do a single thing? It's only when a hand comes and fills that glove that the glove becomes useful or fruitful for any purpose. You are that glove laying on the bench. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. So don't try to, apart from him. Realize his hand is already in the glove. He's in you, and you are in him. Rely on that. Rely on him. Don't go anywhere without him. Abide in him. Don't find life anywhere else. Abide in him and he in you. So then the next question Jesus answers is, how do you practice that? I mean, what, in the nitty-gritty, what does that look like? To practice abiding in Christ. Jesus tells us three things. Pray Jesus' word, abide in Jesus' love, and rejoice in Jesus' joy. First, pray Jesus' word. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Jesus says, as you abide in me and grow to rely upon me, like a spacewalking astronaut relies on his spacesuit, I want you to become mastered and inundated by my words so that when you pray, my word and your will are fully aligned. And for you to pray my word, so for example, as we've worked through John 15 this morning, we've listened to Jesus' thoughts. We've listened to Jesus' desires. We've listened to his goals. We've grown aware of what these realities mean for us. We've learned a little bit more of who we are in union with Jesus. So can the worldly goals we have stay our goals any longer? Can we pray those old goals to God anymore? Those selfish, sinful, worldly goals? No. No. With Jesus' words abiding in us, remaining in us, we don't want to anymore. Amen? Jesus' words transform what we pray for, how we pray, and why we pray for it. Only then does Jesus' wide open, no-holds-barred promise makes sense. Because you're abiding in him and his words are abiding in you and changing you, Jesus isn't worried about promising to do whatever 
you ask. So you need to pray Jesus' word. It's one way to practice abiding in Christ. Next, Jesus says you need to abide in Jesus' love. Abide in his love, verses 8 through 10. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So this is what Jesus wants from you. He wants you to abide in his love. Verse 9. And this is how Jesus says to do it. Obey his commandments. Verse 10. And this is why Jesus says this. Because Jesus abides in the Father's love by obeying his commandments. Verse 10. And what effect does obeying Jesus' commandments and bearing fruit have? He says it in verse 8. The Father is glorified and you prove to be Jesus' disciples. Finally, how does Jesus measure his love for you, which he calls you to abide in? He says in verse 9, it's equal to, oh, about as much love as my infinitely holy, infinitely loving Father has for me. In other words, the length of the Father's love for me is the length of my love for you. The width of the Father's love for me is the width of my love for you. The height of my Father's love for me is the height of my love for you. That's a whole lot of love. The Father doesn't love me 100%, but then I love you only 23.7%. No. As the Father loves me 100%, so I love you 100%. Abide in that. That's how you practice abiding in me. So he says, pray my word. Abide in my love. And finally, rejoice in my joy. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. There are a lot of things in this fallen world to fill you with sadness, aren't there? Scroll social media. Check out the news. Look at all the sin and brokenness in yourself your family, your church, your city, the government, the world, wars, rumors of wars. And your heart will likely fill with sadness. But Jesus says, he spoke of the vine and the vine dresser, the branch and the fruit, abiding in Him and His Word and His love and glorifying the Father. He spoke of all of that to cause His joy to enter into you and cause your joy to fill up inside of you. And when you look at all Jesus revealed, when you scroll Jesus' words and you think about who Jesus is and the power behind Him who made all things, saying, I'm going to let you in on a secret that the fallen world has no idea about. And he gives you the vineyard model. And he says, abide in me. 
you get a little bit happy. So to practice abiding in Christ, you need to pray Jesus' word, abide in Jesus' love, and rejoice in Jesus' joy. And we're getting close to the end. Don't worry. Finally, Jesus tells us two benefits of abiding in Christ. First, abiding in Christ makes a difference in your church. Look at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So the basic principle in this section is this. Abiding in Jesus makes a difference in the church among believers because it makes loving each other actually possible and probable. Abiding in Jesus' love means you get to love each other like Jesus has loved you. Jesus loved us like the Father loved him. And now we get to love each other like he loved us. And can I, just, can I just rejoice in our church for a minute? Thanks. <laughs> so many of you in this church are exactly like this verse. You love this congregation. You love this congregation. From the setup team, the AV team, the musicians, the greeters, security, the children's ministry, youth, the office team, the elders, the deacons, the ministry leaders, the communion setup folks, and anybody else that I missed, and anyone who also just steps up that's not assigned to something and just as a need arises, just jumps in. That's happening all the time. God has been pruning us, y'all. And we're seeing some massive fruit. I mean, it's not, it's not hard to prove. I mean, generosity, inexplicable generosity from all of y'all. Love, I mean, wanting to serve with no recognition and no money, no payment, not even a thanks sometimes. That's fruit, y'all. God is pruning us. He's causing us to bear fruit. He's at work in our church. Praise God. And that's one of the differences that abiding in Christ makes on our church. Second, abiding in Christ makes a difference in your world. Meaning the ungodly and the anti-godly culture. And this is what you might call the flip side of union with Christ. The pro of union with Christ is joy and Christ-likeness. But the, the other pro <laughs> is sharing in Christ's sufferings and persecution. And it really is a pro, according to Scripture. <laughs> 
verses 18 through 27. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So why do they hate you, Jesus? Oh, no reason. They just do. And as long as you're on my team, they'll hate you too. Without a cause, without a good reason. Well, what, Jesus, then what's the solution? I, you know, what's the next step? Verse 26, Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So in closing, when it comes to our godless culture, abiding in Christ makes bearing witness to the greatness and goodness of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit both possible and probable. Apart from Jesus, who can witness to anyone, let alone someone who wants you dead or hurt for the sake of Jesus? Jesus wants you to know that testifying to who he is, even if it hurts, is fruit. Loving the lost is fruit. Weeping for the destiny of unbelievers is fruit. Serving people is fruit. Know that your witness glorifies the Father. And that this is why Jesus opened up the hood on his vineyard model. And this is why Jesus taught us how to abide in him. He says in chapter 16, verse 1, I have said all these things to you, in chapter 15, to keep you from falling away. So what's our confidence that we won't fall away? The world hates you by the power of evil spirits and Satan himself. But you stand for Christ by the power of a Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Which side has more power? Which kingdom will endure? If you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, who do you think will fall away? You or them? So, how do you grow your connection with Jesus when you can't hear him? How can you become like him when you can't see him? How can you live for Christ in a Christ-hating world with Jesus gone? Abide in Christ. That's how. Let's pray. Jesus, help us to abide in you. 
Help us to let your word inundate our mind, subdue our mind, change our mind, change our opinions, change our preferences, change our goals, change our prayers, change us to the core. Purify us, Father. Prune us. Send your spirit to sanctify us and clean us of every enemy and obstacle to glorifying you through obedient fruit. Help us to live this passage, John 15. Fill us and use us to change this church, to change the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.